0: Entering the Freedom Hut.
1: 20 states are ready to reopen. Does hydroxychloroquine work? A new study out that casts some doubts. We'll get into the latest with that. Plus, a mother arrested for letting her kids play in a park. The U.N. is warning that famines are coming around the globe. What to do about the second wave of infection that could happen... And the war on election safeguards. Guess who's waging it?
0: The left. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America.
2: You're great America again.
0: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now
2: 20 states representing 40 percent of the U.S. population have announced that they are making plans and preparations to safely restart their economies in the very near future. So that's uh, 20 states, it's about 40 percent of our country. They're moving along pretty quickly. Three announced today, as you know, and uh, they're going to be doing it safely. They're going to be doing it uh, with tremendous passion. There's. Uh, they want to get back to work. The country wants to get back to work. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everyone. The president
1: expressing the sentiment that so many of us have that we do want the country to get back to work. We all want to be able to get back to work to varying degrees. We're able to continue or not, but we we need America to be doing what we need to do once again. We have given weeks and weeks of our lives to this uh lockdown effort a lockdown effort that still has i would say questionable questionable data to support that the full lockdown was necessary i'm not going to say it was wrong i'm just saying it's questionable and in some places if you look at it state by state you see one well, part of the issue is that if you take it all as a national lockdown yes or no well then you're going to you're going to edge closer toward well i guess we have to be more cautious and, and go with the national lockdown if you do this state by state Uh, There are some states that quite clearly did not need to have a cessation of of business like other states did. There's that's just at this point. I don't know how you can justify telling tens of millions of people in certain states that because there are uh, there have been a few thousand infections that are established. And we got to talk more about the serology testing situation today. But a few thousand tests or, you know, five thousand, ten thousand, you're going to shut down all business. And social uh, social distancing, the mitigation measures that are in place, they seem to be they seem to be working. So that's been positive. But we can continue those. We can continue those even as we try to engage in more normal lives. You know, the the debate here is still not go back to full on normal. No one thinks that we're going to be able to flip the switch and everything's going to be the way that it was before all of this happened. But we're never going to get there if we wait for the risk to be zero. And I think that's the change in consciousness that's happened at this point. I think that's where people have finally started to see a shift in their thinking. Uh, Some of us have been worried about this all along. I mean, I've been concerned about this, trying to raise those concerns here on the show. And I, I just also think that the first person who yells across my at least six foot air barrier of virus safety, to put on a mask or else they're going to call Mayor de Blasio's snitch line, even though I'd be walking entirely alone except for Tallulah in open air on a generally empty street in NYC, they are going to find me very disagreeable to that little dictatorial impulse. They're going to find that I do not like that and do not respond well to it. And I know that there is now a statewide order in effect, but some of these statewide orders are of dubious constitutionality and legality we have been accepting them but if we chose to challenge them the state would have a very hard time proving some of this is in fact within its remit in court Uh, but they're doing it anyway they're doing it anyway and that's uh that that's concerning you know for the past month if you brought up any concerns about creeping state tyranny As I have, you've been told to shut up, you've been told that you want grandma to die, and you've been told to stay inside, peasant. Nancy Pelosi has Jenny's ice cream to eat in front of her $25,000 Viking fridge. Well-stocked by the servants, I would note. Nancy Pelosi, guarantee you, she has, quote, they don't call them servants anymore, they call them staff. I did not grow up rich, but I grew up among you know, in close proximity to the rich here in New York City. And I I know the the, some of the proper terminology for the highfalutin folks. It's not you don't call them servants, you call them staff, even if you make them wear one of those old time butler or maid uniforms. Trust me, Nancy Pelosi's got a bunch of people maintaining the uh, the castle for her while she's telling the rest of us to stay locked indoors. But for the uh, for the past month, if you brought any of this up, that you were treated terribly. And now we have mothers being dragged away in front of their children. uh, For the crime of getting fresh air in a playground and jogging on a beach is treated like a public menace. Many of us have been warning all along here about just what is going to happen the moment the government has too much power. The moment that we start to say the Bill of Rights no longer counts. You can tell us whether we have freedom of assembly. You can tell us whether we have freedom of speech. What we're allowed to say. This is very troubling. You know, one of the areas of the digital era, the digital revolution in which we live, that I have always found to be uh, a, a, a remarkable step forward. True progress. I feel like progressives have ruined the word progress for many of us, but it is still a good word. still got usage. But one area of true progress has been the notion of the major social media platforms as free speech havens. Now, we've all found out the hard way. That's not really true. But how not true is it? YouTube CEO Susan Waj... Producer Mark, how do we... I mean, this is a Polish one. I don't know if you know Polish better than me. Waj Chicky? Sure, why not? Waj Chicky. I'll go, or why, why, why cheeky? That's a tough one. Anyway, the CEO of YouTube, and pardon me, I should know her name, but, you know, we're doing a show here, and I didn't look this one up beforehand, so that's on me. But CEO Susan, we'll call her, had this to say about what what will be removed. Now, we're all trying to find out more facts, have a conversation. Oh, big study on hydroxychloroquine's come out, and people are celebrating. Oh, more people are going to die now because we don't have a drug that can actually help keep them alive. The journalists are all going, see... And they're secretly going,
0: yay, because
1: they're blaming it on Trump like psychopaths. I actually reached out and sent the study to and I've had a conversation with an infectious disease specialist whom I know quite well. And I have a whole bunch of data from a professional or analysis, I should say, from a professional based on that data that I will share with you today that you will not see from the mainstream media. But YouTube supposed to be a place where you can share your thoughts on matters of public policy, right? This is look, this is not hate speech. This is not, uh, you know, threatening anybody or causing violence or instigation of violence or anything like that. This is open public discussion. What should we do about the pandemic? YouTube CEO Susan had this to say about what they'll pull down from that site. Play two.
3: But then we also talk about um, removing information that is problematic. You know, of course, anything that is medically unsubstantiated. So people saying like, take vitamin C, um, you know, um, take turmeric, like those are all will cure you. Um, those are the examples of things that would be a violation of our policy. Um, anything that would go against World Health Organization recommendations would be a violation of our policy. And so, remove is another really important part of our policy.
1: Remove. That's a, that's a nice way of saying uh, censorship. This is YouTube engaging in censorship on behalf of the who? The who? Who? What? What? Archimedes? No. The World Health Organization. That's the same organization that we know told the world in the middle of January, oh, it turns out uh, they, they didn't think there was any evidence of human to human transmission of this virus that has now largely shut down the world. The organization that has been doing China's bidding and that has been praising China in recent weeks for its response to this crisis. Yes, that organization, hmm. If you disagree with them or if you tell people to what? Take more vitamin C or what goes against WHO recommendations, I would wonder? Oh, wearing a mask? If you said you need to wear a mask a month ago, that would have been against the WHO mandate, it seems. And if you now don't wear a mask, you're against the mandate. The mandate keeps changing. For those who actually understand history, the idea that consensus around ideas of medicine and uh, around science, uh, consensus matters, is very, is a very dangerous one. The facts matter. Data matters. Consensus is often political. Consensus means nothing. If you're curious, you could go back and, uh, and read about how there were outbreaks, outbreaks of cholera in Great Britain, stretching into the middle of the 19th century, and at that point in time, uh, London, you know, you're talking about 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. London is really the intellectual and, and scientific center of the world. I mean, London was considered a more, more sophisticated in those regards than anywhere else, perhaps even, even including the United States. And the overwhelming majority of doctors in London would have told you in the 1870s and the 1880s uh, that the reason you would have gotten cholera, which is a very, uh, very dangerous bacteria that's that's waterborne. And it actually comes from human human waste. That's how it is transferred. So human waste gets into the water and it spreads very, very rapidly. And your fatality rate, if you get it within 24 hours, is about 40 percent. So it is a vicious disease and kills people very quickly. Um, The theory was called the miasma theory or uh, miasmatic theory. And it was that there was a noxious form of bad air that gave you cholera. Now, you might say, Buck, why are you bringing this up? Because that was the expert consensus in the most advanced and sophisticated medical community in the world at the time. Now, that's not to say that there's no such thing as science. You know, if I if I have a bad, you know, strep throat, I'm taking antibiotics. Right. I'm not saying that that science isn't science. I'm merely saying that was their theory. They didn't have proof but they tried to bludgeon other people with consensus. And consensus is not science. So for right now to hear people say, oh, well, whatever the World Health Organization says, um, does the World Health Organization get to weigh in on whether the virus came from a lab or came from the wet market in Wuhan? Are you allowed to go against that? I want to know where the censorship stops and starts with what the consensus on these issues may be. We have... Petty totalitarianism rising in states across the country where we just shouldn't see it. No one should be arresting a mom for wanting to be out in the air with their child. It's just stupid. We all know that. It's wrong. And we should expect that any government official would know that. Um, We're seeing that happen and we're also seeing the shutdown of free and open discourse about an area where the models have been wrong. The experts have been wrong. We did not see this coming. They do not know how to treat this. They do not know how to cure this but they want everyone to just shut up and stay inside. I think that's a big problem, my friends. I think we need to keep pushing for real answers. Not, not This does not mean we have an excuse to be reckless and disregard facts and data. It means let's really look at the facts and data and what people are going to just chime in with "Oh, the experts said the consensus is prove it to me do not try to silence me by waiving a fancy degree that someone else or some other group of people have when they won't be the ones making the argument about why I can't take a walk in a park without a mask on my
0: face you're in the freedom hut this is the buck sexton show podcast
3: We will continue to see mortality and deaths among our American citizens, particularly in the cities as they begin to move past peak because deaths will lag. And so we really need to continue to unite and really, really, really support our health care providers who are still on the front lines. They have been on the front lines now for weeks and weeks and weeks and so no matter what city they have been in they have not seen the relief that we've been able to talk about at the at light at the end of the tunnel because of the delay in hospitalizations and deaths so to our healthcare providers to our respiratory therapists and to everyone in the labs thank you for the work that you're doing to protect americans and give us one of the lowest mortality rates in the entire world
1: a lot of important things said there, and I wanted to make sure that I I also always balance out my my dispute is with the uh, the policy medical experts and the way they're influencing national policy, dictating really national policy outside of their purview of expertise. And, and it is inherently, therefore, both an economic and political matter. And that's a separate issue from the doctors, nurses and everyone who are, who are just trying to keep alive our friends, families, relatives uh, everybody, everybody out there right now who's dealing with this. Uh, so I, I always like to make sure that we, we establish that separation. You know, it, it, it is a brave thing to show up every day now as a nurse, as a doctor, as an EMT, and expose yourself to people who have high, uh, high levels of this virus, a virus we still really don't understand very well and uh, have a lot that we have to learn about. I will talk about that hydroxychloroquine study. I have some really worthwhile insights from a true expert for you on that. Um, but I, I also just wanted to note that you, how often do you hear that America has the lowest, you know, that America having the lowest fatality rate from everything that we can see so far is largely, we can't really establish a specific percentage, but largely a function of those healthcare workers. I do not think it is a function of our policy because other countries had lockdown policies, too. I mean, you'll we'll, we'll never really be able to see true numbers on this, but I, I would note that there are. There are other um, other ways, other, other factors that you'd have to look at here. But our doctors are doing really, really good work with what they have. They have a very limited toolkit, which is tragic. Uh, you know, the ventilators, we, we've heard so much about ventilators. Your chance of coming off a ventilator, if you go on, at least by all New York State data, and we've had the most cases, is one in five. Uh, that's very, it's disconcerting. Now, one in five isn't, you know, isn't 1%, but it's obviously not as high as we would want it to be. We need more weapons. We need more tools for our first responders. Also, I mentioned to you the the miasma theory actually comes from the ancient Greek word for pollution, which I think is just an interesting, uh, you know, we have we have these terms, these medical terms that we we still use today. I've mentioned to you before that influenza comes from Italian sailors in I believe the 14th century talking about how they thought that the disease was the influence of the stars. That's where influenza comes from. Okay, this is the term that we still use to this day. Malaria is uh, is a a term from medieval Italian. That means malaria, bad air, which people also thought it was the it was the bad air that made you sick. They didn't realize that it was a parasite that was transmitted through the bite of an infected mosquito and that human beings were the Uh, were the, you know, the hosts and that the mosquitoes were the reservoir for this. So there's a lot that we still have to learn, a lot that we have to get into this fight. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on because this has become so political and I'm seeing already liberals who are saying that hydroxychloroquine, because this one study came out of France and the study's results are not good for those who want a better weapon against the disease, which I would think everybody would be in favor of, but there's some people that can't get out of their way on this one. Uh, But it's not it's not a definitive and it's not as clear as they say. And I've told you when there have been encouraging results about hydroxychloroquine that are anecdotal. Well, I'm going to tell you about what aspects of this study that we've seen are not definitive and do require more study, more scientific rigor. And it's too too soon to tell. Is the real answer about hydroxychloroquine? But I want to tell you why, because I don't think a lot of people are going to get this one right.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You wanted to follow up on the hydroxychloroquine. The hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I'm wondering if, if you're concerned, this, this VA study uh, showed that actually more people died that used uh, the drug that, that didn't. And I'm wondering if, uh, if Governor
1: Cuomo brought you back any results. No, we
2: didn't discuss it, and I don't know of the uh, report. Obviously, there have been some very good reports, and uh, perhaps this one's not a good report. But we'll be looking at it. We'll have a comment on a, it. A soon. panel of experts at the NIH is actually now recommending against the use of hydroxychloroquine in combination with ZPAC, which is something you've okay, we'll been be recommending. To, uh, I'm always willing to take a look.
1: Okay. Notice how all along here we have been told that this is somehow political, that the president trying, uh, trying in some way to encourage people uh, encourage people by pointing out that there's some good information about a drug that, remember, this is not drinking some random substance in the hopes that it's a miracle cure. This is a, lo- a decades-long approved by the FDA drug that is really helpful for people with lupus, with rheumatoid arthritis, and who don't want to get malaria, which... I had to work with a guy once who who had malaria, like who had a relapse of malaria. It can actually relapse, too. I would note it's a um, uh, the parasite can come back. It's a it's a terrible as it was explained to me when I was going over to Africa for the first time on assignment by the government uh, to a place where malaria was everywhere. Really bad malaria was everywhere I was going to be. But it's I I was told whatever the drug is you got to take, take it because you really don't want malaria. Okay, it's a nasty, nasty disease. I remember working with a guy who had the relapse, and he was just, whew, he's in really bad shape. So we know that it works for other things. We know that it's safe enough to take that, remember, there's always a balance. When you take Tylenol, and by the way, if you go speak to a, uh, certain doctors who are you know, neurologists, I mean, they'll tell you people that take a lot of Tylenol for headaches, very hard on your stomach. You really, you know, Tylenol can mess you up. And by the way, not just Tylenol, any of these NSAIDs that you take out there, um, there's just, it's hard on your system, it's hard on your liver. You really don't want to be a heavy drinker and use those things. And this is all on the label, right? This is I'm not telling you anything that you don't know if you've ever read the label of, a, of an ibuprofen or Tylenol or any of the rest of it. Point here is that there's a trade-off in the drugs. And with uh, this study... On uh, hydroxychloroquine, we're being told, well, let, let me tell you what, what it actually says. A, a malaria drug widely touted by President Donald Trump this is, uh, for treating the new coronavirus showed no benefit in a large analysis of its use in U.S. veterans' hospitals. There were more deaths among those given hydroxychloroquine versus standard care, researchers reported. The nationwide study was not a rigorous experiment, but with 368 patients, it's the largest look so far of hydroxychloroquine with or without the antibiotic azithromycin for COVID-19, which has killed more than 171,000 people as of Tuesday. Um, Okay, this is all in Politico, right? That's a quote from this Politico article. The study was posted, so is this, the study was posted online for researchers and has been submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine but has not been reviewed by other scientists, grants from the National Institutes of Health and the University of uh, Virginia paid for the work. Okay, Uh, Friends, this sounds really this sounds like, you know, game over for hydroxychloroquine. And and I, I will just note. It is appalling that there are people that seem to be eager to report this story and have a whole, ha-ha, told you, Trump was sharing this, Trump's so bad. This is about giving people who are on death's door in a hospital with a, with a very debilitating, painful, and lethal disease, giving them a chance to beat it. I, I give you my word, I, I, on, my, on my word of honor... If, you know, Chuck Schumer was out there saying, hey guys, I saw this drug study and it looks pretty good for COVID patients if they take the following, let's hope it's true, which is all Trump has said. Trump didn't say it works. He's saying, let's hope. He's saying, I've seen some things. Let's let's hope. I promise you, I'd say, I hope Chuck Schumer is right and that this study does prove, I mean, we all want, we all want the same thing here. We should want the same thing here, which is more weapons for our healthcare providers to fight the invisible enemy of this virus and protect more people protect more lives save more people but there's a there's an an obvious a visible glee with which some in the media report on this and you do end up asking yourself how deranged have they really become when even under these circumstances the most important thing to them is that Trump looks bad. There's no disappointment at this drug not necessarily working the way that we were hoping. No one said it was a cure. I should say no one in the Trump administration said it was a cure. I don't know what everybody says, but the Trump administration was not misrepresenting this at all. But it's also not over, friends. You'll see that whenever a study comes out, like serology tests, all of a sudden everyone becomes an expert in scientific experimentation. All all, all of a sudden... Uh, they will be said, oh, there's no there's no control group. Oh, there's no, uh, you know, there's nothing, nothing that you can do to look at this that makes it prove anything. Right. I mean, you know, there They tear apart studies that remember beating the virus has been conflated in a lot of journos and Democrats minds with good for Trump. Therefore, hmm, a little conflicted about some aspects of this. You know, a little, 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 you know, sure, they would say they want to save every life. Of course, they would say that. But yet, whenever there's a story that could promote the ability of the administration to handle this better or that it's not perhaps going to be as bad as we had been told, there's this very clear, there's this partisan divide in the way that people view this. And I find that very troubling. But this study that now, and I saw people, there were people, that we're kind of spiking the football See, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work the way that you were told it does well that's that's really bad news for humanity okay we, we want drugs that are gonna save people here we want things that are gonna work but it's also not true this is just yet another data point among many and we don't remember what I said it's not about consensus It's about science it's about facts it's about what is true what is provable what can be replicated as a result? And here is what a, fr- a friend of mine, and, uh, and, and really on all these issues, a kind of mentor, I, I said, look, Ken, you got to break this study down for me. What are we? I said, is this game over for hydroxychloroquine? And I can tell you, this is somebody who I have, I mean, I've entrusted my health and my life to in the past on some serious stuff. This is a guy who really kn- really knows his stuff, and he's, he's very, very highly regarded, but he, like, he lives, lives a private life as an MD, and I'm not... I told him I just would use his analysis. I'm not going to, but he's an infectious disease specialist. He said, this is what, this is his response. You know, the media, Politico, everyone's, oh, you know, NPR, the study shows hydroxychloroquine is, is garbage, doesn't work for this. The dangerous drug. In fact, more people died who took hydroxychloroquine. Here's what he says. Quote, this is probably the worst of study designs. It is retrospective analysis with no stated methods as to how patients were assigned one of the three treatment arms. In addition, the three groups were not entirely comparable and all were sick enough to be hospitalized. A key indicator of prognosis, uh, fibrin degradation products, was not even measured. So although it may be proven true in subsequent prospective trials, we should also understand that proponents of the use of hydroxychloroquine in various combinations with other drugs all suggest that the drug is most effective when used early, well before patients qualify for hospitalization. This is similar to the way we use oseltamivir. this is how you know this came from an expert because I don't even know how to pronounce this stuff, Oseltamivir or baloxavir for influenza. Unless started within 72 hours of onset of viral symptoms, these effective proven and licensed drugs have little or no demonstrable effect on the course of influenza. However, we still routinely will use them in advanced late beyond 72 hours, influenza patients who are sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. It will be interesting to see if this article is even accepted by a reputable journal, meaning the study is even accepted by a reputable journal. Oh, wait a second. You mean there's a lot more layers here? There's a lot more research and work that needs to be done? I've been telling you this for weeks now. The, the, the real experts who are looking at this and who are, and he's somebody who's, his hospital is treating large number of COVID patients. He's looking at all the data from, the, from those trials. I have another friend who's a doctor out in Brooklyn. He's treating large numbers of COVID patients and uh, l- looking at, and then they were using hydroxychloroquine on them. And it seemed like it works for some people, doesn't work for other. Well, it's not random. There's some reason why it would work for some and not others, and we'd have to get to the bottom of that. But notice how the politics drives the narrative, not, not the science. We already know. So you see what he's explaining here is that, first of all, this, this study is, there's a lot of holes, there's a lot of weakness in the study. But we already know. That there are the the most effective antivirals we use for influenza. Remember, 14th century Italians influenza, influence of the stars. Uh, We we already know that you have to take it early on, or else the viral replication gets to the point where you you can't really you know the horse has already left the barn, right? You're you gotta you gotta get to it within a certain time frame, or else. And this is even true of Tamiflu, which I'm assuming maybe that's what Oseltamivir. Um, that's probably what it is, actually. Now that I think about it, I'm just guessing that might not you know, that's not medical advice, but you have to take these drugs early on or else they have no effect. That's true. Of inv- so why would that be so strange with hydroxychloroquine? Because people were, you know, the regulators were a little bit gun shy about giving hydroxychloroquine to people. You know what they've done? They've said it's only going to people in hospitals. What ha- who shows up at hospitals now with COVID-19? that small but substantial percentage of people that have extreme symptoms. So you're already looking at people who have had a lot of virus replication inside of them and are in bad shape. It may be too late for hydroxychloroquine to switch that off. The primary threat to individuals once they get to that phase is at least the primary threat that we're seeing that causes causes fatality. We know the lungs shut down and they don't function. But why it's ARDS. it's this inflammatory syndrome in the lungs. It comes from something called a cytokine storm. Well, if you already have enough virus in your system that you're, you've arrived at the fi- cytokine storm phase, even if you're starting to fight back on that virus replication, the inflammatory and immune response in your lungs may be too much, and you might die anyway. Now, you know, this is theorizing, but it's theorizing, and I'm, I'm bar- these are theories I'm borrowing from actual MDs, And and people that work in infectious disease, not, you know, no offense. I love dermatologists. They do great work too. But I'm talking with people that look at at infectious disease. No, they do infectious disease too, in a way. But, you know, they, you see see what I'm saying. People that this is their realm of, of expertise. So, I remember I think there was a, wasn't there a Seinfeld episode where Jerry said something about dermatologists and then and then they're like "Are dermatologists?" And then uh, I think George or somebody's like, "Yeah, Jerry, skin cancer." And then he goes, "Oh, no, he
4: he was dating a dermatologist and she claimed to save lives." And he said she doesn't doesn't save lives and he called her out for it. That's and right. then she was treating skin cancer.
1: Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Yes. Yes. So I don't I, dermatologists, legit MDs that do very, very important stuff. I just mean that this is within the, spe- the doctors I'm talking about this. This is within their specialty of dealing with infectious disease. Um, you know, somebody on, on uh, social media actually called out Alex Berenson, who we have, who we had on the show, who's one of the few people willing to ask questions about the dominant narrative about COVID-19 and all of this. And someone was yelling at him on Twitter. You know, your wife is not even is not even a physician. She's a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists go to medical school, have an M.D. and are, in fact, physicians. I, I, I Alex, I think, appreciated it on Twitter. I, I explained this to some of the angry masses who people really don't want to believe what he's telling them, which is just, hey, look at the numbers. It's not it's bad. It's not as bad as they're saying. That's the message that gets you in trouble these days. Things are bad. We all know that the economy is in really bad shape and we're losing a lot of people from this virus and things are bad. But the virus itself is not as bad as they told you it would be. And that's the message that gets you in so much trouble right now. It's also why when you bring up the possibility of a therapy that is useful in fighting against this disease, especially if it's something that the president, and not just the president, a lot of people have talked about hydroxychloroquine. Doctors have been going on TV talking about hydroxychloroquine. Oh, but Tom Hanks' wife says that it gave her really bad side effects. Yeah, there are side effects. We've we've always known that about the drug. Ah. people are not aligned here with what is righteous and what is good they're they're not turning toward the light on this issue because the politics of the moment have blinded them uh, we don't the answer about hydroxychloroquine is we don't have the answer but people that are trying to act like we do and shut this whole thing down i know there's a change in the cdc guidance about it well that's because they don't know but we shall see my friends it is too early to tell that's a different thing from we know and ha trump was wrong which is bizarre on a whole bunch of levels
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
2: Corona is really saying to Americans is, hey, wait a minute, folks. It's important to listen to the experts. It's important to listen to scientists. It's important to find a baseline of truth and make the choices on it. So coronavirus may be America and the world's great wake up call with respect to the challenge of climate, because this is coming at us. If you think pandemics are bad today, wait till you have the warming at a greater level than it is now. And we're headed there. Every scientific mm-hmm. report and, and judgment shows that we are heading into uh, a, 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 a amazing Negative impacts, uh, the feedback loops on the, on the earth are just horrendous right now. I'm not going to go through them all. But so that's that's the meaning of the deaths thus far. And, and yesterday was the highest number of deaths. And, and still, this president
1: is avoiding responsibility for testing. Just all blather and talking points and, and nincompoopery from John Kerry. That's really that's his expertise. Nincompoopery. What the heck is he talking about? The, the lesson of COVID-19 is climate change. And how much worse climate change is going to make these these people that they really they have been brainwashed and maybe perhaps their efforts to brainwash other people has seeped into their own brains and they really believe their own BS now. Maybe that's where this is. Maybe they you know, this is the reality of their own mindset. We're in the middle of this pandemic and you want to tell us that we should be worried about climate change. The, that's all based on models. He wants to talk about listen to experts. Climate change is all about models. Models have been wrong for climate change consistently now for really as long as I've been alive. The experts on climate change tend to usually be people who are like lawyers who work for big international NGOs who are leveraging some scientific consensus when the real consensus doesn't exist. But the tyranny that you're feeling right now around this issue. They will use this on climate change in the future. Mark my words.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: You also campaigned on reducing legal immigration, and I'm wondering
2: if... Some critics are saying that you are using the virus now in this crisis to follow through on that promise to reduce yeah, I'm legal impact. No, no. Well, I want people that are in this country, I want our citizens to get jobs. I don't want them to have competition. We have a very unusual situation where something came in that nobody has seen for many, many years. Decades, Probably 1917 would be the closest analogy if you look at it, when you look at the contagion, the kind of contagion we're talking about. So, no, I'm not I'm not doing that at all. I want I want the American worker and the American, our American citizens to be able to get jobs. I don't want them to compete right now. President saying he's suspending immigration because national security reasons, of
1: course. We don't want additional virus cases brought into the country. And also, he doesn't want Americans at a time when we're losing tens of millions of jobs, unprecedented job losses, competing with non Americans for those jobs. Sarah Carter is an investigative reporter. She also is a dear friend of mine and a Fox News contributor. I, I like to think that being my dear friend is more important than being a contributor. You know, who knows? But anyway, <laughs> Sarah Carter, I, I just realized I threw that in the middle. I'm like, well, I should probably give her a resume first. But anyway, Sarah Carter, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Dear friend is definitely at the top of the list.
1: Thank you. And I'll ta- I'll take I, it. I feel that <laughs> you don't way. have to put that on your official resume, but but I'll I'll take it. Um,
3: no, it is on my official resume. Buck, Ses- Buck Sexton is my dear friend.
1: There we go. So so Sarah, I know you know you, you we want to talk about the Crossfire Hurricane stuff because you've been all over that story for for years now and have been breaking lots of news on it. And I think people think of your investigative journalism work on that as much as anybody in the field, if not the premier person in that field. Um, But I know you also do a lot on the border. And when the border was a really hot topic, I used to come to you to get insights about your travels in Central America and what you're hearing from Border Patrol. Given the crisis right now, the president's decision to try and suspend immigration, what are you hearing from CBP, the challenges that that they face and, and just what's going on at our southern border right now?
3: Well, I got to tell you, from the very beginning, CBP, um, our U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers that are out there on the border, on the front lines every day, were very concerned. There are a number of uh, Customs and Border Protection officers who have been exposed to the coronavirus. Uh, there, you know, of course, those that that do have it um, have been pulled off the front line until they can get better and recover. That's a big issue. I did speak with Patricia Kramer she is a union rep for the very front front line officers at the ports of entry uh there was a lot of concern and there still is a growing concern it's a story i'm actually working on right now that even though people aren't allowed into the country there's quite a bit of traffic going into mexico and then coming back in uh so they you know they've been fighting uh uh, fighting that you know saying that their officers are being exposed and as far as you know this suspension the 60-day suspension of immigration uh across the board i think it's a vitally important buck because uh you're looking at a number of issues here uh economics Uh, exposure of our of our officers, um, the disease, which is still rampant and spreading in other parts of the world, as well as here in the United States. And uh, people got to get a grasp on this, and especially on the economic side. You know, one of the biggest problems we have right now is how are we going to get Americans back into the workforce? Uh, Some of these businesses, especially small businesses, have been lost now completely. We know that some of these businesses are not coming back and uh americans need to be the first in line to get the jobs uh once the economy which it will come back uh you know gets going we have to be able to get americans back into the workforce get our economy pumping again like it was before the president's doing the right thing and anyways this moratorium right now is happening at a time when we already have a moratorium on this this just buys more time for the administration and for the government to figure out who and what needs to take priority, and uh, that, of course, is the American people and our law enforcement officials on the front line. Um, did you, a lot of did people-
1: you see the the Madeline Albright, uh, the Madeline Albright quote? You know, she's been somebody who's very, very friendly to. Uh, you know, free trade with China. That's actually not free trade. As we know, she's been enriching herself for a long time on that one. That, people have been talking about that for the last few days. Uh, but she said that it's almost like the president wants to shut down the country. <laughs> it's un-American about the border. And everyone's sitting around like, I can't even leave my house, lady. What do you mean? The country is shut down.
3: The the country is shut down, and this is the issue. When people were still coming back and forth across the border, and a lot of, and, and, and believe me, this was happening even under the president's directive, there were quite a few supervisors on the front line and people were saying, well, we're going to still let the traffic flow back and forth. I did write a story on that where they were coming back and forth. And then you have other officers that are right there working the front line saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Why are we being exposed if our families are forced on lockdown? How can people come across the border here to the United States to buy milk, or to visit family or vice versa, people leaving the United States who have family in Mexico or who are shopping in Mexico. They're, you just can't do that when you're trying to stem an outbreak of this magnitude, especially whether or not you know, the statistics are all right. And I, you, know, I, you and I have both pointed this out you know, on these random stats, whether or not that's happening, the American people are on lockdown. I mean, I'm lucky if I get to Safeway Every day, you know, to go pick up groceries—that's my my trip out of the house, right? Um, And you know, sometimes walking with my daughter around our neighborhood just to get exercise. So, if we're on lockdown, well, then why should we have our border wide open for people to travel in and out? There is a reason why this administration is doing that. It's smart, and it's it's actually beyond just the mitigation of the spread of this disease. It's bringing us back to what we need to do, and that is put Americans first economically, that we can move ahead, and if there is a place and a time where we will be reopening the border, there has to be priorities in place. And, you know, Madeline Albright has always been a globalist apologist, along with quite a few other people. They they. they They definitely are the antithesis to uh, President Trump, uh, directly opposite in his thinking of putting America first. This is about globalism. And we have to be very careful about, you know, people that really want to push this global idea of, you know, opening our borders, um, you know, past NAFTA deals, all of these Iran deals that were so bad that President Trump basically just eliminated and renegotiated, and he did that for a reason. He did that to put the American worker
1: first. And we're speaking to Sarah Carter. If you haven't already, you should go to sarahacarter.com. That's her site where she's posting stories and including the investigative pieces that often blow a, a huge hole in the the deep state narrative, especially around issues of Russia collusion and well, the absence of Russia collusion. Uh, but Sarah, before right. we move, before we move to that topic and, and your your latest work on that, because I know we have these footnotes declassified now that we can see from the inspector general report that are some in a normal circumstance if we didn't have a global pandemic everybody would be saying wow that's a big story but right now it's getting overshadowed as everything is one more on on the uh, uh, coronavirus situation uh, mexico uh right you were talking about the border and our border security mexico has not yet been hit that badly by covid 19 but as of today there's all these reports that they i mean they've had um, Mexico City, for example, has had half of Mexico's 8,772 cases, 35 percent of the 712 deaths. And now Mexico is over 100 million people; it's a large country. They've had very few right. of these cases. Are they expecting there to be a major spike? And if that happens, what does Border Patrol think is going to happen on our end?
3: That's right. It's a great question, and it is something that not only the medical community is looking at. But I can tell you that, you know, the intelligence community is looking at and our law enforcement officials, uh, it would stand to reason, according to sources that I've spoken to, that Mexico and Central America will see spikes in the spread of COVID. Um, now, every nation is different and how they classify and can you know get their statistics is different. and also environments are different. So that is something that they're going to be looking at whether or not the the warmer weather as summer comes around, will that mitigate the spread of this virus. But remember, Buck, there will be, according to medical officials, a concern that there will be a second wave. And a lot of people have been talking about, oh, coming up with a vaccine, will we will we have a vaccine in the future?', well, That could be years from now. That could be two to four years from now if they ever find a vaccine that actually is really going to work against this. Because remember, viruses and pathogens, they mutate, they change. Um, and that's always been the problem when we try to stay one step ahead of the flu every year. You know, sometimes the flu vaccines are effective. Other times they're not effective because that means there's a different strain of it coming around. But I can tell you this, talking to people in Central America, this is a big, big concern for them. I spent a lot of time in Guatemala. Um, I know a lot of the senior Guatemalan officials in the government from the previous government of President Morales and some who are currently in this new administration, they are watching it very carefully. They're working very closely with U.S. officials on this and uh, trying to monitor. But gosh, Buck, you've traveled to a lot of the similar places that I've traveled to uh, around the globe. And, you know, there's a lot of areas of poverty in Central America as well and it's very very difficult to get the right medical uh, officials in those areas it's very very difficult
1: and, and also I, I would have concerns that the, if you're going to have uh, you know covid 19 and you have some of the economic devastation that we've had in this country if that starts to filter you know south of us we can handle it better certainly than those economies can and the possible influx of What you what they you know, the left will refer to them as covid refugees, even though we have covid here. That could very well be coming. And I I think that's that's a concern that we all have to keep an eye on. That's why the president shutting the borders uh, might be a a prescient uh, decision at this point, shutting down immigration, I should say. Uh, But, Sarah, also just just because we got we got a few minutes for this one. You've been following Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI's bogus investigation into President Trump for Uh, Russia collusion in the 2016 election. And there was some big stuff that came out on the Inspector General Horowitz report, new stuff from the footnotes that are now declassified. What can you tell us about it?
3: I think this is probably some of the biggest news. And unfortunately, we're not seeing a lot of the major news outlets report on this. The American people must be informed about what happened here. And these footnotes that were declassified by chuck grassley and ron johnson the senators that have been investigating and really pushing for the dni that's the director acting director of national intelligence Rick as well as the attorney general to declassify these footnotes basically exposed in a nutshell that the fbi senior members of the fbi and the crossfire hurricane team as well as i believe from what i'm hearing from my sources Other members like John Brennan, James Clapper, former Obama officials, knew all along, knew all along, Buck, that this information was Russian disinformation. Basically, what Christopher Steele put in his dodgy dossier, the debunked dossier, was actually information supplied to him by some Russian-connected Kremlin sources that were putting disinformation into the dossier, to uh, harm President Trump and to harm our elections, to harm our nation, and to, to see, divide and seed chaos. The question is knowing that they knew this, why did they continue to do it? And what is their culpability in this? Uh, you know, from the beginning, I've always said this appeared to be a soft coup from uh, senior Obama administration officials that did not want candidate Trump to become president. And if he did, They wanted to take him down. And more and more what we're seeing is that they were very aware that they were the ones actually colluding with Russia, that they were actually spreading Russian disinformation. And just as a footnote to all of that before you let me go, Uh, I spoke yesterday to Nigel West, a former parliamentarian uh, uh, from from Great Britain, as well as an expert on intelligence, written a number of books, and did an investigation into Christopher Steele um, back in 2017. And what he discovered from Christopher Steele's report, and by the way, this was somebody who was friends with Christopher Steele, so this isn't somebody who hated him by any means. This is somebody who was asked to conduct an investigation Uh, After looking at Christopher Steele's numerous reports, because there were actually 17 reports that he actually did um, on the Trump administration, uh, he concluded that Christopher Steele made up the report, that he was basically... This none of the report was actually true. So he's a
1: in the intel business, we, you know, we'd call him a fabricator. He's a fabricator,
3: a fabricator, exactly. That he fabricated this report, which is really stunning. Now, he may have had, and according to others, he did have some connections to Russian sources, and he did. But the thing was, is the way he described his sources, the way he described his sourcing. There was just no way he could have had this information from any legitimate sources. So what we see now is that Christopher Steele basically was a fabricator, and the information that he did put in there that seemed the most salacious was just actually Russian disinformation from Russian intelligence, from their GRU and FSB. And uh, so it looks like the Democrats themselves were the ones that were duped By the Russians. And uh, for those that weren't duped, they should answer the question to the Attorney General and to Prosecutor John Durham if you knew this was Russian disinformation, why did you assist in spreading it?
1: Sarah Carter, everybody. Sarah, please stay on this story because we're gonna we're gonna need to find out what the what the resolution is here, and if we don't keep the pressure on, we know they're gonna. You and I both know uh, the old Potomac two-step. They'll sweep it under the rug unless folks like you stay on it. So thank you for all your work on that. Everyone should be following Sarah on social media. SarahA.Carter.com is her website. Sarah, thanks so much.
3: Thanks so much, Buck. Great to be on.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
3: It is happening in the context of Congress having gone on recess for a month. We are going to pass a small potatoes bill, and then we are talking about recessing again until May 4th. And if we are going to bring every member or call back almost every member who can back to D.C., to pass a small incremental bill and with the knowledge that we are not coming back until next month. Again, that's two rent checks. And the last time we left again, we lost over one nine 11th worth of people due to this lack of, of, um, of action.
1: We lost a nine worth of people due to lack of action. How? That's, that's quite a thing to, to say. And that's AOC, as you know, the, favorite uh, young member of Congress for the for the left. And they've realized, you know, Bernie Sanders, folks, you're not going to be hearing much more about that guy much longer. You know, Bernie Sanders, you know, he had his he had his several runs at the office of the presidency, and it's not going to happen. They're going to have to start looking to build the next generation of left wing statists and build build them up. And AOC is certainly very close to the top of that list, if not already at the top of that list. But notice the language being used here. I mean, I think it's important to drop in on the progressives in Congress to understand what the, the longer term game is a small potatoes bill. Now, I, I'm, I'm willing to, to say that clearly they didn't lay out enough money. Everyone knows this That's why they had to then. But when we're going to start referring to five hundred or so, I think it's four hundred and eighty something was the actual number, but close to a half a trillion dollars of short term spending as a small potatoes bill, it's clear that we have lost all sense of proportion and also are very are kind of blithely gliding toward real economic catastrophe. If half a trillion dollars of spending could be described by anybody as small potatoes, we got big problems. And the Democrats all along are seeing this as no matter what happens with the spending, this is an opportunity. This is setting the stage going forward for a whole lot more spending. The ramifications of this, my friends, on a policy level will last well beyond this virus. And that's even if the virus stretches to be a, a menace for a couple of years.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck, Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: No amount of money. Not all the money in China will save us from ourselves. Our only hope of rescuing this great country is to reopen the economy. If you print up billions of dollars and give it to people, they're unlikely to spend it until you end the quarantine. The good news, though, is that the scientific community finally has facts instead of conjecture. The The question before us isn't do nothing or print endless amounts of bailout cash. The debate should now include the one choice that will get our economy growing again, reopening American commerce.
1: We need to heed the senator's words here. You know, Rand Paul's one of these guys who, you know, when, when you need him, you really need him. And uh, I think that Rand Paul, and I, I've always thought that his, uh, his political skills weren't as, as far along as, as his knowledge of political theory. And, and I, I do believe he's a principled guy in his approach to politics too. Uh, that that he does his beliefs matter in the exercise of his of his job as a senator, which makes me also think that he'd be he i think he'd be a pretty good president. I know people don 't think so I think he'd actually be he wouldn't bother you you wouldn't have people getting you know pulled off of uh, subway subway cars because they don't have a face mask on, although that's a state issue I'm not trying to I'm not trying to you know take a, a cheap a cheap shot at our current president, but I'm just saying you know he's he's a guy who does believe in liberty and freedom and he also understands. Because of what, what he knows, but also the legacy of his father, Dr. Ron Paul, um, you know, he, he understands that this uh, that this amount of by the way, it's Dr. Ron Paul. I know Rand's an ophthalmologist. Producer Mark isn't is, is Ron Paul a doctor, too? Or am, I, am I imagining that? I got I, Gosh, I, sometimes I so much so much information. Yeah, he a physician. Thank you. He was a physician. I thought so. So he's Dr. He's a real doctor, not a Dr. Jill Biden doctor, a Ph.D. in education. No, 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 no. We are not going to call you Dr. Jill Biden because of your Ph.D. in education. Um, Where were we on this? Yes, Rand Paul saying we have to reopen the economy. The projections of what starts to happen if we continue to spend money at this rate and really I shouldn't say spend money, print money. That's the issue. Uh, I think a lot of people and I've, I've seen some analysis from Wall Street on this. A lot of people uh, recognize that we are that, that those who can are sitting on the sidelines, not spending money and not investing because of the great degree of uncertainty right now. And those who are in a tough position, they're spending the money very quickly. that The government's giving them because they have no choice and it's coming up short. They don't have enough cash. That's twelve hundred dollars is not going to last people. Reopening the economy is going to be a very complicated, a very challenging process. And that's assuming that we're all operating from the good faith position of what's best for the United States, what's best for the country as a whole. Uh, we, we have to we have to reckon with the truth that there are people right now who I, I think in their mind they separate out, you know, they say, oh, I, I want all life to be protected uh, from COVID-19. But if the economy needs to be um, if the economy needs to be a little bit beat up, a little bit longer so that Donald Trump loses the election, they're OK with that. So this is where you're going to see this fight, because that desire to uh, do everything possible, as I say, to, if it saves one life, that theory, if it saves one life, it should be done. That will be used to shout down anyone who's pushing for Reopening, Um, And there's another another concern here, another uh, problem that a lot of the political debate obscures right now. And that is if some states do open with the more uh, limited mitigation measures, remember, no state is going back to totally normal. But if some states open with these mitigation measures in place and they don't have a spike, what then? Why do we need all 50 states effectively all 50? I think it's. Maybe 47 or 48. Technically, But why do we need all these states to have the shutdown orders? Why is over 90 percent of America told stay home? You can't go outside. Does any does anyone find an easy justification for that? If, in fact, it seems that states are able to control this on their own with much less severe mitigation measures, that's going to be a whole debate. It will also then indicate that the the blame Trump campaign because he did not order the federal shutdown fast enough may not have any any data, any merit behind it. Put put aside that everybody got this thing wrong and nobody really knew. But if states were able to, on their own, engage in mitigation measures that would control the virus as it continues to be a threat and continues to spread, which it will, I mean, Dr. Burke said it at the top of the show. We all know there's going to be more. There are going to be more COVID cases. There's no way around it. But if it's not an overwhelming problem and if the loss of life is not something that society cannot sustain. Right. Uh, Then everyone's going to turn around and say, well, hold on a second. What was what was going on here with these? uh, What was going on with this declaration from on high that we have to have the shutdown? And then everyone's going to look at the pain, the alcoholism, the child abuse, the loss of jobs, the loss of livelihoods, the destruction of businesses, the anxiety, the psychological pain, the depression, the duress that we're all under. And we were told it was for our own good. Remember, we're told it was for our own good. There's going to be a moment of reckoning for all of that. They keep trying to tell you that the Swedish model is a disaster. It's not. It's just not true. They keep trying to tell you that we shouldn't look to other countries that did not shut down. Did Japan shut down its whole economy? No, it did not. Why? The only answer we were led to believe, the only answer, unless you wanted just... Bodies in the streets, millions of people dead. The only answer. Was to shut down the entire economy, the first time in history that the United States has voluntarily decided to shut down its economy. We do not do this during wars. We do not do this during previous pandemics. And and this is what our policy community settled on is the answer here. And it was remember it wasn't just the they they got us going with a two week shutdown. Then they extended another month. Six weeks of shutdown, huh? And then we get to what do we do with the second wave, the second wave that may come. Um, Everyone right now is is trying to see the future about how bad this will be coming back in the fall. And we don't know certain things and no one's going to know them right now. Like, will we have better therapeutics? Will we be in a stronger position to fight the virus then? than we are now based on the tools that we have. There's so much focus on on testing, where will our testing be at that point? Now, remember, as I've said to you, by the time that, you know, no matter how good we think the testing gets, test and trace is going to be imperfect, which means there will be spread of this disease. It'll hopefully be a containable situation. But let's understand that the even the people that are yelling testing, testing, testing. They accept implicitly that there will be some trade offs here which means there will there will be people who die from this virus because of the reopening even if we get to the testing levels that they declare are completely necessary and uh, you know Nancy Pelosi never helpful in any of these discussions keeps on re- she keeps repeating this mantra about science as if that's an answer to it what well, the, the science says what exactly right now shut down forever This is not a scientific only question. This is also a deeply political question that goes to individual rights and freedoms and the Constitution. Here's what Pelosi says, though, nonetheless. Play six.
5: Uh, There's a Boy Scout saying proper preparation prevents poor performance. Well, that was exactly where the president gets an F. He was not properly prepared, not with the truth, with the facts or the admission of what was happening in our country. Delay, whatever, delay, denial, death. Uh, instead, we'd like him to see him uh, insist on the truth, and we must insist on the truth with him. And that is really sh- what should give us hope. If he finally, it's no t- never too late, it's never too late, as I keep saying, to tell the truth, Mr. President, and it's mm-hmm. never too late to do the right thing and to pay attention to science, 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 and science.
1: This is really what liberals have been reduced to testing, 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 science, 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 just repeating words that they think make them sound smart. You know, this is a little bit like the reduction they do about much more complicated issues like climate change, for example. Do you believe in climate change? It's a stupid question, but people ask it all the time. What does it even mean? Do I believe in climate change uh, that is real but not particularly important? Do I believe in climate change that would justify the shutdown of the global economy in order to save the planet? Think of the span there. You know, this is like some of the modeling. And oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to dig more into the models of the past. It's not just that we've gotten the wrong models for disease right now uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. The models stretching the models for Ebola were terribly wrong. The models for SARS were terribly wrong. Just go back. The models for initial HIV infections were very wrong. I mean, they're just the models for the early, in the early stages of a disease are almost useless. It's like someone who gives you a range, you know, a, a range of, well, you know, the stock market, I'm, I'm predicting confidently, and I'm going to look you in the eyes right now, America, and I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to predict the stock market that the Dow, the Dow will be somewhere between 5,000 and 35,000 over the next six months. That's right. You can take that to the bank. Is that a helpful prediction? Does that tell you how you could manage your money and what sort of risks you'd be willing to take? Dow at five thousand, things are very bad. Dow at thirty five thousand, things are fantastic. We must have found a cure to this miraculous. Right. Uh, But that's what you see with these these disease, uh, these disease spread models that that the pandemic preparedness community relies on. And it does very much affect the decision making that we've had about how quickly we're willing to start to reopen businesses. And that then brings me to some of the impediments that we see to the reopening of businesses that we've we've known they're real. We've known they're going to happen. But now it is uh, now it is becoming apparent from from what's actually happening on the ground in states across the country. I'll, I, what, what happens to a restaurant now, even if they want to bring people back? I'll, I'll walk you through that.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
5: Uh, Mitch McConnell likes to say, we delayed the bill. No, he delayed the bill. Uh, among, uh, two weeks ago, he came to the floor and said, this is all we're doing, just the 250. And the Democrats were reunited, House and Senate. The Senate Democrats went to the floor and said, no, no to that. We have a better idea about hospitals and testing and uh, more funds for all of the businesses, the lower, uh, uh, shall we say, the unbankable small businesses. So we were very pleased that he finally came around to the the fact that we had to go forward with this. Uh, so he was the one wasting time. I say that because I keep hearing him say uh, we delayed. No, he delayed.
1: Total rewriting of history from... You know, wine cooler Pelosi over here. I mean, just total crap from her. We all know. And the media lets her get away with it. They just, they pretend, oh, they speak truth to power, the guardians of our democracy, the journos, you know. The fourth estate. Please. They're the worst. The worst. We all know that Pelosi was playing games. Everybody knew Pelosi was playing playing games. No one says that they're not going to have a, there's not a willingness to, try to help out hospitals. You know, look, part of the shutdown problem here, part of the issue is that hospitals are going bankrupt now, folks. People can't get normal care, and hospitals are going bankrupt all across the country. With each passing day, they're going under because of the uh, cessation of of elective procedures, which some, when you, th- when you look at the full scope of elective procedures, some of them are not really that elective. They're pretty important, pretty urgent. Um, but also a lot of, Uh, preventative medicine won't has not been occurring I mean just I don't even want to think about this but I do think we have to keep it somewhere and somewhere in the back of our minds think of all the cancer screenings all the mammograms all the all the you know analysis for uh, early stage prostate cancer all these things I mean here's a perfect example I I haven't gone to the doctor I mean I haven't gone to the barber but I haven't gone to the doctor this year uh, to get to get checked out and have my physical and I don't know when that's gonna happen and now you might say, well, I'm a relatively young, healthy guy, and so it shouldn't be a big deal. Well, what if I don't get to go for six months and I do find out that I got something that is a big deal? Now, it's not just, oh, look at me. It's extrapolate the circumstance that each individual is dealing with over 320 million people and then start to think, OK, well, how many, you know, serious diseases are being missed in this period? And, and it's not going to end anytime soon. Right. the, the shutdowns in, in these hospitals. They're just beginning to get up to speed. And it's been now, you know, it'll be easily six weeks going on two months of just missed medical uh, medical action, other than dealing with COVID-19, everything else. But people still have heart attacks. There's a lot of really bad diseases and things out there that people, as we know, heart disease and cancer and lung, and, uh, lung cancer and all these things, those still very much exist and are killing people. And we've effectively said, you know, the, the preventative measures that we can take in hospitals, those all get put on hold right now. Now, again, they tell us this was the only way, but hospitals are going bankrupt. Okay, so Pelosi's pretense that Republicans wouldn't give money for that is total crap. But then you also just have some of the well, for Republicans perhaps unintended, but the the consequences of the uh, rescue bill itself. Really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal by Kurt Huffman. Uh, it's a commentary piece. Our restaurants can't reopen until August employees refuse to return to work as long as they're getting an extra $600 a week. He talks about how he's trying to keep going. The goal is to survive. They're doing some takeout. This reminds me of all the restaurants in New York and the service industry employees. I think it's 10 to 15% of America. I think it's something like that. Producer Mark fact-checked me on that one. I think it's 10 to 15% of America. It's a big, I mean, service industry jobs are, are huge, they're a huge part of the economy, irrespective of whether my off-the-cuff off the number is, right in line and uh, you know the, he says this restaurants at 30% of their usual revenue and here's what's going on quote we started making the calls last week to our furloughed employees but they've banked, they've already begun receiving weekly federal pandemic unemployment comp- compensation checks of $600 under the cares Act when we asked our employees to come back they all said no thanks if they return to work they'll have to take a pay cut the starting wage for a line cook in one of our restaurants is $15 an hour these cooks receive at least a dollar an hour in tips, so at minimum they make $16 an hour or $640 before taxes for a 40-hour week. The overwhelming majority of our laid-off cooks qualified for Oregon unemployment compensation for $416 in our example based on the cooks' wages. The extra $224 a week provides a strong incentive to return to work, but as of this week the same employee receives $1016 a week or $376 more than he made as a full-time employee? Why on earth would he want to come back to work? The Trump administration is talking about setting a timeline for when the country can open for business. For my business, Congress has already locked down that date. We can open our dining rooms on August 1st once the government stops paying people $15 an hour on top of standard unemployment compensation to stay home. Democrats wanted this. This is a stealth
0: $15 minimum wage, my friends. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, team, we have a special treat today for you.
1: James Altucher joins us now. He's an American hedge fund manager, author, podcaster, entrepreneur. He's founded over 20 companies, and he's host of the James Altucher
6: podcast. Mr. Altucher, hello, sir. Hello. So happy to be on your show. I've been I've been listening ever since back when you were at the Blaze.
1: Wow, how long ago I, was that? that, that was a while ago. That is a high compliment. That's like uh, I left the Blaze four years ago. So yeah, and I started almost ten years ago now. So it's been a while, man. But thank you so much for joining us. I know you, like me, are in NYC. Your background book selection that I can see here is is a. More impressive than mine, which indicates greater square footage in your apartment. So, lucky you, because I'm going stir-crazy over here. But
6: how, how, how are you, first off, how are you doing in lockdown? You know, for me personally, I, I don't like going outside. I don't like traveling. I had all sorts of trips scheduled for March and April, and I was very happy to cancel them. I was going to Austin, Houston, uh, California, Florida, D.C., Winnipeg. All the trips were canceled i'm so grateful but i do every day just i don't know what it is i just um you know just like you i've been reporting and covering this economic lockdown and of course the the virus and it's just horrible the effect on society is so much suffering from you know of course of course the virus but also the economic shutdown which affects three hundred million people and and you know it's the world's biggest economy 7 billion people around the world and so you know i think we all no matter how we are personally we all feel we, we the herd anxiety of nobody's working nobody's producing everyone's scared everyone's anxious and you know no one no one is uh, no one could defend themselves from that. No matter rich or poor, sick or healthy, you're going to feel the anxiety of the world in, in moments like this.
1: How do you think uh, our leadership so far has has responded to this? Where, where do you think the balance is? There's obviously the virus in the economy. It feels like there's been a shift to the recognition that the economy can't just be something that we stick in the deep freezer until we decide to thaw it out. What do you, what do you think about what we've done so far with this nationwide lockdown? And you know, are you following what Europe has done? What different cases have been like there with at the, the nation state level? What Sweden has done in their approach? You know, how, how do you gauge all that?
6: Yeah, Buck, it's, it's a good question. I've been following everything on. Um, I've talked to members. I've actually talked to members of the Federal Reserve. The other day, I was talking to the deputy chairman of the Federal Reserve. I've talked to uh, economists like Tyler Cohen from Marginal Revolution, other economists. Uh, I've talked to the top epidemiologists and immunologists at Imperial College, which was the first one out with all the kind of doom and gloom uh, scenarios and mathematical models. So I've been a little all over the place just trying to figure it out for, for my own audience. And I think I think, you know, the economy is not a light switch. You can't turn it off and then turn it on three months later expecting it's just gonna, it's gonna be just as glowing as, as it was before. We've, we've done something disastrous here. And you, you mentioned a lot of countries, every single country, and quite frankly, every, every single state in the United States has had a different strategy for dealing with this. And you look at countries like Sweden or the Czech Republic or Taiwan, three different countries, three different strategies, none of them did. A lockdown all of them had their economy returning full force and didn't need you know the full stimulus that that we needed and i think it's a shame that we did this economic lockdown when there was absolutely no data to support it sure I by the way and this is this is sort of sacrilegious to say i'm not even so sure there's data to support social dis- distancing like you mentioned sweden maybe it's just that they naturally social distance because they don't really like each other that much but they they didn't social distance, and they're they're coming back fine. It's not it's not like they were great, and it's not like they were bad. They weren't the worst in Europe, but they weren't the best. But I think this I think this pandemic kind of has its natural course. I mean, you probably remember like in early February, some of the initial mathematical models were even saying up to hundred forty million deaths worldwide, which was insane. Like you know, you, you, this was, Singapore in total had I don't know less than a thousand. And look, You have to say this, again, it's like religion. Every death is horrible. We have to acknowledge that. But, you know, people die every day from all sorts of causes. So just setting that aside for a second, it does appear that even the early data from all the initial countries that we were in, that the virus was in, the early data was suggesting this virus doubles exponentially three or four times and then starts to peak and flatten. There was no way it was going to have... Uh, uh, a 2% fatality rate worldwide. And now all these recent tests, Santa Clara, California, Chelsea, and Massachusetts, other tests are showing that the the infectiousness of this is probably 50 to 85 times worse than we thought or greater than we thought, which means that the ultimate fatality rate is much lower. The higher the infection rate, the lower the fatality rate. We're probably looking at a 0.1 to 0.3% fatality rate. In other words, you know, a flu similar to a flu season. Of course, you're not allowed to say also this is similar to the flu. It's not similar to the flu. The, the, the flu affects children and kills children. This is affecting um, elderly. It's two different demographic groups. So what that means is on the hospitals is that if you end up on a ventilator from this, if you're elderly, you end up spending more days on the ventilator. Hence, if we were going, if the hospitals were going to be overwhelmed, it, it, it could have caused a problem. But obviously, they weren't overwhelmed, and so that didn't happen. And now they're saying, well, it's because we enacted social distancing principles, but we don't really know. And some states that didn't really do anything have barely any cases or deaths. So, you know, to treat every state as if Oh my gosh! You're not even allowed to go to the grocery store, you know, or else you're gonna die. That's just ridiculous. And now, the, now the question is, we're not coming back to a new normal. We're coming back to a new abnormal. This has never happened before, and the stimulus has been trillions of dollars more than we even did in the massive stimulus in 2008, 2009. Yeah. So, what do you foresee that and doing, James? Certainty.
1: What do you see that doing to the economy? I mean, we're now seeing hundreds of billions of dollars thrown into uh, congressional spending bills. Uh, we, we can't even keep up with it. I mean, it was it was a, a couple it was a few trillion dollars. And now they've added it was going to be 250 billion. And then it was 300 billion. And now it's close to half a trillion. You know, 400 something billion was the final tally. And Chuck Schumer's already saying there's going to be an, a part, a part three or a part four to this whole thing. At, at what point have we how do we know as a government, as a country, We've spent too much money. What does that feel like? What does that look like?
6: Yeah, that's a great question because, because there's going to be a before. It's not like in 2008, 2009 where there wasn't a sudden before and after. Like it wasn't like the economy was bad in 2008 and then as soon as the stimulus was passed and, and it, it was good. It was, it was, the economy never was closed then. So the economy went from bad to having some stimulus to then becoming good. But right now, we're all being forced, almost, literally at gunpoint. Like they'll arrest you if you don't, if you if you you know go outside without a mask or whatever, don't obey proper social distancing. So, so sooner or later, they're going to reopen the economy all across the U. S. And then at the same time, the stimulus is going to be hitting. We've never had an experience like that where everybody sort of walks out of their home and, and sees daylight. And money is just showering down from the sky. And of course there's a risk of hyperinflation, but right now we're in a deflationary period because there's zero demand. So the price of pretty much everything now is between 20 to hundred percent below what it was. So we're in a massive deflationary scenario that's been forced on us, but it's going to change as soon as we leave. and, and, And as soon as the economy reopens, we don't really know what prices are going to look like now. To your point, on a macroeconomic level, the the fortunate thing we have, it's both fortunate and unfortunate, but there's such huge demand for the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is the flight to safety for the wealthy in China, the wealthy in the Middle East, the wealthy in Europe, that that keeps naturally our interest rates low, and it keeps people buying, other countries buying our debt. So that sort of avoids too much inflationary pressure. But an economy is only as good as the goods and services it produces. People pay for those goods and services in dollars. And that's why the dollar is valuable because it buys U.S. goods and services. But ultimately, if you're just throwing a trillion dollars a month out there and you're not producing any goods and services, sooner or later, everyone's going to look around and say, well, why are we, why are we giving so many of our, much of our currency to the dollar? The dollar is sort of worthless. Now, the, the, what will avoid that, the sooner the economy reopens, the better. Every month we wait, the economy comes closer and closer to uh, uh, the twilight zone, where we don't really understand what's going to happen next. If the economy were to open this morning, we can probably start to guess what, what industries are going to fail, what industries are going to succeed, and we'll come back to some sort of normal. The short-term stimulus will kick in. That's the, uh, the direct to your bank account, uh, $1,200 checks that are going to everybody, and the PPP loans that are going to small businesses, that's the short-term stimulus. The long-term stimulus is the Fed rate cuts, and that'll kick in, let's say, within 12 months. Uh, So we have short and long-term stimulus that will beef up the economy, and the hope is that we we didn't miscalculate and rely on the kindness of others too much to, to support our dollar. And, you know, hopefully the economy comes back
1: intact. James, I want to come back and talk about how this situation is changing, not just obviously the economy, but life going forward. we mentioned, you know, the new abnormal or what what's. And, and, I, and I want to also take a look back and see what have we learned about life, perhaps that we, we used to think was true, that was not. I saw a thread you had on this that I thought was really interesting. We'll come back with James Altucher, podcaster, author, entrepreneur, investor in just a second.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: Okay, we're back with uh, James Altucher. He is a hedge fund uh, manager, author, podcaster, uh, book in, uh, his book "Choose Yourself," and many books, many podcasts, many things. Yes. Mister Mister Altucher, jack, uh, jack of all trades, a uh, James of all trades.
6: Yes. D- dilaton of everything,
1: master of nothing. Yeah, well, we we have the same first name technically, so that that speaks well to you. So let me let me ask about what you, you had a thread I found really interesting, and I think some of these some of this audience is really going to agree with it, and they're going to probably going to disagree with some of it. But that's great. We like we like to spark ideas here and and spark debate. Uh, myths that we have learned as a function of this lockdown, myths about ourselves and about society. I just what what are some of the myths? You know, the, the top ones. I know you had a whole bunch.
6: Well, I think that I think there was this myth that uh, we have to be in a location to work or to learn. Like, look, you know, it's clear now. the The, the tide has come in, and the first institution, group, first group of institutions standing naked are uh, institutions of higher learning, colleges. Like, colleges were charging seventy thousand a year, and suddenly they said, "Oh, by the way, we were." You could just go home and learn by yourselves, but we're keeping the money. Don't worry about it. You'll get your degree, but just go home and play with your little friends, bother your parents, get your grandparents sick. You get out of the dorm rooms, by the way, because we don't want your, your petri dish of disease infecting our dorm rooms, but don't ask for your rent back because that money is ours. Now, business 101, we took that money from you and possession is nine tenths of the law. So. I don't know, like everybody's leaving college and they're supposed to take courses online. I've seen some of these online courses. I would rather take a course for $10 on Coursera or LinkedIn Learning or Khan Academy. Like, why did anybody pay 70,000 a year for four years to, to to get a degree that says, Oh, I learned East Asian studies. Like, it's ridiculous. Well, the, well their
1: credential, they're really credentialing, their credentialing programs, which is especially, I think that's been better known for a long time about some of the more flimsy master's programs in the humanities. But now people are realizing, well, it's like an arms race, right? If everybody has a four-year liberal arts degree of some kind, the value in the marketplace of just having that degree is not the same as it used to be.
6: No, I mean, in this, already you're seeing, you know, skills and ideas are the currency of the 21st century, not... A degree from whatever you know school, and I'm even talking right up to Harvard. Like Harvard, there's always a credentialing where there's some status thing, so other people who, who think that they're higher status will will hire you. But look, Harvard, they just took. Uh, they have a 41 billion dollar endowment. You know, until they were kind of caught red-handed, they were they they took nine million dollars from the last stimulus package, supposedly to give to students needing financial. That's
1: yeah, so Tr- Trump says they're going to give it back, by the way. <laughs> he said that last the, uh, yeah. the, the, so earlier the week. Guess
6: what the head of the Harvard Endowment makes per year? He makes, guess what, $9 million. Oh, it's a t- payment protection program. Let's protect the pay of one employee, the guy who runs all of our money. So it, it's just, it, you know, that's, that's a big myth. And then there's the myth that you, have, you, you can't work remotely and be productive. You know, right now, I, I think anything with the word remote in it is is going to be supercharged. And, and there's a both upside and downside to that. We're going to be able to be more flexible about our work hours, more flexible about where we work, more flexible about travel. But at the same time, you have to ask, what's going to happen to commercial real estate? And by the way, not that we have to care that much, but everything in the economy is linked. So we work clearly is going to go out of business after this. Like they're, they are bankrupt and SoftBank pulled the plug on funding. So WeWork is the biggest, uh, lease, leasee, I don't know what you call it. They, They rent the most floors in New York city of any other company. So if you own a skyscraper in New York city and you're heavily leveraged and you have to make your own mortgage payments and WeWork suddenly disappears and they rented eight floors in your building, you might be out of business. You can't just replace them the next day. with 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 a renter so and that's we were and then there's all the restaurant storefronts not every restaurant is coming back to business in in urban areas and maybe all over the country so this you know 10 million restaurants on average they had 16 days of cash in the bank restaurants are out of business in this country right now and so now yes they'll be helped by the stimulus package but guess what the stimulus package at least initially went to the shake shacks and uh ruth's chris steakhouses of the world and this mom and pop small restaurants are out of business. I know because all the GoFund—I own a local storefront business in New York City. All I see all the local these being, you know, from the employees of all the different restaurants and businesses, restaurants, but that you and I have even been to, and they're all out of business. So what are going to happen to those buildings? Who are no longer getting the fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in rent a month that those restaurants were getting? So commercial real estate is going to collapse and we're going to have like a mini financial collapse after we reopen the economy just on the basis of that so you know i think i think a lot of things are going to be both good in that you know we'll reopen the economy people will have an opportunity to really decide what they want to do they probably changed habits so they didn't spend as much they didn't go out as much hopefully they'll start spending and going out again but some people won't and that might be a good thing for them but the other thing is uh you know it's going to be quickly everything that was going to eventually happen like the
1: demise of yeah they, they've accelerated they've accelerated the clean the it's- cleaning out of a lot of the economy in, in, in ways that's going to be very tough everybody james al tucher podcaster author check out his show the james al tucher show and we'll be back in a
0: second thanks for listening to the Bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts
1: it is time for roll call thank you so much everybody for writing in i always appreciate it it uh, helps us out to hear from all of you across the country and let us know what's what's going on with all of the things all of you uh, so as always thank you so much for that let's get to it shall we well first of all, let's check in with our friend producer mark producer mark how are you doing what's what's at the top of the netflix queue How's how's life in the penalty
4: box? But the home penalty box. There's a lot of questions there. I'm not really sure how to how to go there. Yeah, you just you,
1: you take them as, as you as they come. You take them as you want.
4: No, I'm doing well. You know, I, I'm into a routine of doing absolutely nothing and then coming and doing the show. Right. Thank God we actually no. have a show to do every day.
1: I mean, I've yeah. I've always been thankful for this show. But like, if if I wasn't doing this, let's let's say that you know there was a, a government ban on all home media for some reason, which would be crazy. But I'm just saying, if nobody was allowed to work from home, even doing media stuff. I I would I'd go nuts, man. I, I would oh, yeah. have read three or four books in a, in the first like week or two of quarantine, and then I would have just been I don't know. There's only so much cooking you can do too, because I cook food that's delicious, and then I want to eat it, and I'm going to turn into Job of the Buck. So there are limitations.
4: Yeah, uh, I'm going nuts even with spending what eight hours or so on the show every day. It feels like you consume my life now, Buck. It's all I do. I know. I know. You can say it, producer Mark. I complete you. <laughs> <laughs> Not going that far, Buck. <laughs> It's all right with
1: uh, with Tallulah, man. I gotta say, I've never been so thankful to have a, a little a little furry uh, little furry companion. You know, it's just nice to have. I mean, if I didn't have her, all, all I've got here is a plant, uh, and and it's not a it's not a plant that I think is you know gonna be. Uh, I know, hopefully, it lasts through this pandemic. I'm not great at keeping the plant alive. The dog, I'm very good at feeding because if I don't, she she lets me know that my, uh, my culinary efforts are not up to par.
4: And no one will think you're going crazy because you're talking to the dog, not to yourself.
1: That's, that's true, too. I mean, I do talk to the dog a lot now. I will say that occasionally I have to make sure that the mic is off in here because I find myself making up songs to sing to the dog. Like, that's how... You, you know those old videos where they got guys who are in prison and they'll be like, uh, you, know, 20, you know, 25 bottles of beer on the wall? You know, there's all that. I'm kind of at that phase, except
4: I'm singing songs to the dog. Just out of curiosity, do you think I just sit here in my living room and listen to see if I can hear you all day? No, but I'm just paranoid. If anybody heard me singing, <laughs> they'd be like, I think this guy's out of his mind. That's a good point. I'd be more Sing. worried about your neighbors than the microphone,
1: though. No, that's, that's, that's definitely true. Um, you know, the neighbors. That I, I've got a neighbor upstairs, and he does cough sometimes. And I'll tell you this, I hear that cough, and I go... <sighs> Oh, boy. Oh, boy. What's worse, a
4: cough or a loud bass from upstairs? Because I have the the, the bass problem.
1: What is it with people not understanding that (sighs) bass travels right through floors and walls and ceilings and it's very disruptive?
4: Like, I have a sound bar. I turned the
1: bass off because I didn't want to annoy my neighbors. I will tell you that I had a very terse exchange with a neighbor in the Freedom Hut, uh, or he's a neighbor to the Freedom Hut, I should say, and I had to go downstairs, and, and initially he wanted me to do the whole... Well, was it just loud ten minutes ago or twenty minutes ago? And I just was like, "Dude, it's too blanking loud. I don't want to have to come down here again." You know, it's one of those conversations. So
4: yeah, I just D- let my landlord deal with it. That's probably and right movie. now I don't want to go talk to random people. You know, with a mask on all that. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I'm just lucky that he didn't probably look at me and say, "Oh, I'm sorry, my music was too loud." <coughs> it's,
1: it's all true. he has to. All no. you have to do right now. You, all go you running. I'm going to say that, look, if if someone comes up to you on the street, especially in New York, because we're not really allowed to be armed at all, which is appalling, but we're not. uh, If someone comes up to you on the street and they say, you know, give me all your money, you you let off a real a real hacking cough in their face. Well, hopefully if they they don't want to do this, they have a gun because that might end up very badly. But they're they're just threatening to, like, beat you up. They'll probably run away. I wouldn't I wouldn't fight somebody who was coughing right now. I don't care what the circumstances were.
4: I don't think I'd fight somebody who was coughing, period. Anytime.
1: Yeah, but partic- particularly now. Yes. All right. Graham uh, writes, On the subway, spread thesis, which makes sense to me. Are we seeing... Oh, yes, Graham, this was written about, by the way, last Wednesday in the New York Post. That is actually where the story was broken, just in case any of you were wondering. It was a New York Post story about an MIT, uh, MIT study, and I cited the author here on the show. And I, think, I want to hat-tip and thank the New York Post for putting that story out there so that we could all uh, use the, the, you know, spread this academic research far and wide in a way that is useful for the national and ongoing conversation. So high five New York Post hat tip. Uh, But yes, you're right. Are we seeing similar issues in San Francisco or other cities with high utilization of public transit, Chicago, Seattle, et cetera? I know no U.S. city really compares to New York City, but aren't there a few that kind of do? Um, we are not seeing it yet from what I understand, but remember the New York City subway is in a category by itself. When you look at the numbers and the frequency of ridership, There is nothing that's even close across the nation. I mean, it really is between it's a few million rides a day, a few million. Think about that. Um, but someone like me for a while there at the beginning of this year, I was in the subway four times a day. I mean, producer Mark will tell you, I was actually on the subway four separate trips a day. So we, because if you try to drive around Manhattan, if, you, if you're on any kind of a time cruncher schedule, you, you're just going to sit in traffic all day. I mean, I've, for, for hits for different cable, uh, for cable news shows, I'll tell you a little bit of insidery stuff. You know, they send a, I mean, this isn't like cool insidery stuff, but they'll send a car for you usually. That's the one perk if you're unpaid, which most of the people you see on TV are not by these big cable networks, or a lot of the people, I should say, are not. The hosts obviously are, and the correspondents are. If they call someone a contributor, that means they're getting paid. If you're just a guest, they're like, hey, it's Buck, let's let Buck talk. Uh, but you know, you can sit in a car from my, from my house to Fox News. You can walk in 15 minutes or so, or you could sit in a car, and it might take you 30 minutes to get there, maybe 40. I mean, it's really, be you could just get stuck and stuck. So that's why everyone's on the subway all the time. I have not seen any data... Uh, looking at other cities and their spread, but I just know off the top of my head that there's nowhere else. I mean, the D.C. Metro is like a tiny fraction of the New York City metro system. And because it's a tiny fraction, you have to remember the remember you know, that 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 MIT study published in The New York Post uh, was pointing out that it's it's about the density on the subway car as well as the duration of the subway ride. And look, maybe the theory's wrong. And you know what I'll do? I'm going to look around. I'm sure there's some theories now trying to debunk it out there. Maybe it is debunked in some way. But it certainly makes sense when you look at the hot spots. And I've been talking about the subway all along as a major problem here. And there's a reason why producer Mark and I both started staying off of mass transit when this thing really spiraled out of control. But so the answer, Graham, is I got to look into it. I don't I don't have a a good answer for you. Uh, JJ, I just want to say something about the whole snitch sitch in Garcettiville as of a year ago, the city of Los Angeles was running a $1 billion deficit, yet somehow he thinks he can afford to pay people to rat on those who aren't properly social distancing. I mean, the taxes on pot sales are approximately 50%, but I have no, no idea how he intends to foot this bill. Uh, also, I don't know if you have heard about this, but Garcetti has simply started taking over hotel properties and using them for the homeless. I have heard about that. Furthermore, Comrade Newsom. <laughs> I like this guy, J.J. Comrade Newsom has also started shaming other cities and counties for not following his example. While I live near Los Angeles, the hotel I work at, thankfully, is still in Orange County and has not yet been endangered by this reckless, fiscally irresponsible policy. Given that the situation does not fall under eminent domain, how can Garcetti or anyone else justify the seizure of property? Who will pay to have the hotel staffed and policed? Who will pay to have the properties deep cleaned and sanitized, sterilized, if they can actually evict the homeless squatters after the crisis abates? I'm a born and raised Californian, but I am seriously fed up. Sadly, I'm not in a position financially to be able to move, but we will definitely start a fund toward that goal as soon as may be. Well, JJ, you've always got a home in the hut, my friend. Great, great note. Thank you so much for writing into us. And I don't have answers. You're asking great questions. I don't have answers. I don't, I don't pretend, unlike some other... Uh, smarmy, self-important, and nasty radio hosts. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I just have a lot of them. Uh, And as for uh, Garcetti and how he's going to justify this, we're seeing a lot of government power that's taken into people's hands right now where the only justification is because I said so. That should be troubling for people. That's a troubling precedent for the government to set, isn't it? We should think of this and think of what it really means when the government can do that. It is is a
0: concern that we should all share. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: All right, more roll call. Justin, hey there, Buck and Mark. The interview with Jack Carr the other day got me thinking of comments you've made several times. Buck, you really need to get your pistol permit. Living in Massachusetts, I know it's not always an easy process, but that is definitely by design. Like so many other lib tactics, they actually use the process as the punishment. Suck it up and get it done. You'll thank me later, I promise. Stay healthy and safe in lockdown. Justin, you are 100% correct, and I I don't have a good excuse. My excuse is that the process is the punishment. I can tell you that when I moved from D.C. to New York this past summer, uh, I did print out the New York City pistol permit application and was... And then I just got distracted, and I was like, I don't have time for this right now. But, but, I mean, I've been thinking about it. I know people who have successfully done it. It is possible. It's really just a premise permit. To get your concealed carry here is very complicated and not easy to do and usually gets denied unless you're connected, unless you're somebody who's, you know, hooked up. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's, where, that's where it's at, my friend. You, you're correct, Justin. I should, have, I should have a pistol permit here in, in New York City. And uh, when I do which won't really be able to happen because I'm not I don't think I'm going to wait in a long line at one police plaza right now to although maybe there are no lines at one police. Maybe it's like the easiest time ever. One police plaza is the big NYPD headquarters here. It looks like something that was built as like the KGB's interrogation headquarters. It's the ugliest, ugliest building you've ever seen in your life. Definitely not. Our Deco, as our Tribeca headquarters for iHeartMedia is, which producer Mark pointed out some time ago because he's apparently on the side an architecture enthusiast.
4: Yeah, big architecture enthusiast, even though the only architecture I see right now is the inside of my apartment building.
1: <laughs> well, do you have any kind of a you, got a, you got a view? Can you see, can you see water or something? Yeah, there's like a swamp.
4: And oh, train do you, have, do
1: you have meadowlands kind of view. You know the
4: yeah meadowlands type of view, and I get a lot of train horns. You would be you would be driven nuts because there's a train horn every five to ten minutes.
1: When I lived in college, we I I, I where I was in college for one year was fifty
4: yards from an active railroad track, and you know at the I don't o'clock understand the morning. why they blow the horn. There's no gate crossing here. It drives me nuts
1: yeah i don't i don't know they just do it i guess you know i look if you're a train engineer and i'm sure like everything there's always like a train engineer list there's always somebody who's an actual expert on whatever i'm talking about listening to this show um i'll never forget when i like miss when i uh misidentified an aspect of like wiccan theology i got a long email about that not messing with the wiccans the folks are all great just i just didn't know uh, but you know, a train engineer. I feel like if you're the train engineer, come on, you know, you're gonna want to go, you know, nah. you know, it's a, it's like being a, it's you know when you and you ask a trucker to hit the horn for you when you're a kid, you know, to do the the big horn, whatever you what do you call that thing? I don't know the, the pull the down horn. horn or just the horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's I think if you're a train engineer, you just want to let it rip, right? Uh, sure, but
4: can you do it somewhere else I get is the busiest corridor of rail travel in in the country, but you know do it somewhere else, not Look, near an you, apartment building You
1: may or may not I think I've talked about this before here, but you may or may not know that i've gone on I've gone deep down the rabbit hole of why we have backup machine sound all over the country, this you know beep 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 that we all have to hear all the time, and sometimes it'll be for like uh, the equivalent of like an outdoor Zamboni machine or something. It's going like three miles an hour. No one's going to get hit by this thing, but they still have to because of the OSHA. It's an OSHA regulation, Occupational Safety Hazard Administration or whatever the actual acronym is. Um, And and it it stretches back to the 70s when someone came up with this idea that we all have to have these noisemakers. Do you know what ends up happening in most cases when someone actually is is hit by a, a car or a truck that's backing up? You know what they find out? That the person heard the noise, but they're so serious to hearing it. They didn't pay attention, so oh. it doesn't matter. This I didn't is think you know, of This is anyway. I'll never forget when I was in college. This kid was a hero. This kid was a hero when I was in college. They because Amherst was very progressive and very left wing, and I lived right right on the town green there. So I lived near the train tracks one time. Then I lived near the town green, which was very fancy and but it was all college housing but i mean it was the nice the nice part of the college to live in but there was a cross a crosswalk thing that would do the like you have 20 seconds to cross
4: 19 18 so it was the dumbest thing i've and it would go 24 7 that at least makes sense because blind people need to be able to cross the street ah now i feel like seinfeld when he's saying that you know the dermatologist dermatologist dermatologist.
1: (laughs) thanks now i feel like a jerk (laughs) But I'm just saying I remember some kids and I'm sure they were hung over and, you know, they and it was, you know, or, or, or actually they were drunk, not hungover, But it was the middle of the night. And I remember seeing them from my window and I knew who they were. They were lacrosse players to uh, this. Well, this one kid, actually, the other kid was standing on the corner. And he ran across the street with a golf putter and just just mauled the little, you know, you have 19s, so I just just bashed the thing in. It was like, whoa. Uh, it's always the Lex bros. Uh, Oh, oh, the lax bros are a crazy bunch, but man, I slept so much better for the few weeks it took them to actually come back with, you know, town services to fix that thing. It was fantastic. Fantastic. And a bunch of blind people couldn't cross the street. There were no fatalities in the crosswalk. There were like 10 people living in the town. But yeah, Now I I didn't didn't think about, uh, thanks, producer Mark. I didn't think about that aspect of it. All right. Uh, Bill. Uh, Sir, where will you be in North Carolina for your speech? I would like to attend and pass the word amongst my people. Really enjoy your show. Bill, the speech, assuming that we're allowed to hold it by state regulation, which we think we will, but that is, that is an if right now, we will be in Craven County, Craven County, North Carolina. So that's where I'll be giving a speech, and I, I hope everybody will show up. Craven County GOP will be hosting, and uh, we're, it's going to be quite an event, man. We're going to, whew, we are going to let it rip that night. Eric. Buck, reading Porter's article in American Consequences left me reminiscing on early investment hour episodes. Still a great show with Dan Ferris. But to be honest, the Porter-Buck combo was about as epic as podcasts get. Any chance you could get Porter on for an interview? Uh, Eric, I'm going to tell you, this is the truth. During this show in one, of, in one of our breaks, I got a text from my man, Porter Stansberry, because, you know, we talk all the time. And I said, Porter, we got to get you on this show. So the answer is yes. And, and I'm not... Uh, I swear, I I got it before you even asked. So we must have some kind of mind meld here or something. We'll get Porter Stansbury on, and we'll do a longer form with him, too. I I hope you've all been. Producer Mark, where should people go to hear the podcast extras, to watch our videos? Please uh, please tell them where to promote the things.
4: The podcast extras are the same place you get this podcast. It'll come in the same RSS feed, so everywhere, iTunes, uh, excuse me, Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, all that, and uh, on YouTube, it'll be youtube.com slash Buck Sexton. There we go. Please subscribe. Also share
1: uh, what we're putting out there so people can see it. Tell other family members. That's a great way to expand Team Buck, and we, gr- we really appreciate it every time you can do that. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be doing some long form with Porter. We, had, uh, we have James Altucher today. Uh, we, have, we had Ted Nugent. we got a lot of people in the queue. It's going to be fantastic. Team, stay strong. Stay safe. Shields high.